0: started, doing a quick fly through the book of Habakkuk, right? And there's some really important principles in the book of Habakkuk. So you can put the first slide up there. Habakkuk is a guy who was honest with God, and uh, he's a guy that uh, does a lot of the things that we don't, uh, or he asks a lot of questions that we would love to ask. He wants to know why God. Anybody ever asked why God? That's something that he asks. And so there's a lot of principles in here. And actually, Habakkuk is a, uh, a book that's really, there's some like central points within the book of Habakkuk itself. Not just the question of why, but the question of vision is answered. The question of um, faith is answered. God gives them some really, uh, some really important standpoints here. What we know about Habakkuk, we don't know a lot about him, but what we do know about his person is we know he was a priest who became a prophet. And in the Old Testament, so we have, when you understand your Bible, you have to understand two economies. There's two systems in play here. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what happened in the Old Testament was translated into the New Testament. And a lot of things in the Old Testament were done away with. Some things went through, some things were ended, and some things were changed. And what determined that change was the cross. What determined that change was Jesus. And so some things made it through the cross. Some things stopped at the cross, and some things went uh, were transformed when into the New Testament. Blood sacrifice is one thing that ended in the Old Testament. Done, ended at the cross. So then, um, uh, something that was changed in the in the New Testament. Uh, the the where regimented days of worship, that was changed. All days are raised days of worship. So it wasn't just one specific day. That was something that was transformed. It went through the cross. It was an Old Testament principle of assembly, and it was brought through into the New Testament, but it's not on a mandated day. New Testament tells us every day is unto the Lord. Every day is worship unto the Lord. So if you get my, you get my point here. And so what's going on here is Habakkuk is a priest, and in the Old Testament, God had segmented roles. The nation was created to be a theocracy it was designed to be a, a nation that was governed by God. Not a nation that was governed by political systems or by ideologies, but by his his heart. And that was his original intent. Unfortunately, the people wanted a king. They said, no, we didn't want, we don't want Jesus. We want, we want our own king. And so God had, but God, the way the Lord structured the nation is he had prophets, he had priests, and he had kings. And so what Habakkuk was, was he was a priest who became a prophet. Now the life of the priest was very regimented. It was Everything was run by a calendar. They had what's called a liturgical calendar. And so the whole year they followed a calendar. Some of you come out of churches that still follow liturgical calendars. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. They had, their days were prescribed. Their dress was prescribed. They had to go through an order of worship in everything that they did. But he became a prophet. And what happened when he became a prophet... Is, uh, is he came into almost a, a, a completely different lifestyle. In the New Testament, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And if you really want a teaching that's going to hit you, and if you really want to understand something, he's called us into that same role. All of us are prophetic. Oh, man, i got an agreeing audience here this morning. This is good. This is good. Normally I have to doctrinally define what I'm about to say. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Bible says, yeah, that's true. You know, it says we are, we are um, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we're divine royalty. We're a priesthood. And we're also prophets. It's true. Acts chapter 2, all will prophesy. Your sons and daughters, those who are near, your manservants, your maidservants, all will prophesy, dream dreams and see visions. All can, not all will. And why won't they? Because most don't want to, either they are ignorant of it or they're apprehensive towards it. But Jesus has set forth His church to be a prophetic church. Jesus has set forth His church to be a priestly worshiping, what priestly means is from us to Him, from Him to us, from us to the world. That's priestly. Unto Him, from Him, and unto others. That's what the priestly ministry means. And we are all called to minister that way. We're all called to minister unto the Lord. We're all called to receive ministry from the Lord. And we're all called to ministry not unto each other, but also unto the world and the culture itself. So all of God's people are called prophetic. All of God's people are priestly. And we're all called kingdom. We have authority. You have authority. You have kingdom authority. There's no one in charge. If there's only one Christian in the room, the one with the spiritual authority is the Christian. I don't care who the boss is. If the boss isn't a believer, he may be the boss of the corporation, but the one with the spiritual authority is the believer. We have kingdom authority. We have kingdom power. And we're called to not just carry that kingdom power, we're called to manifest it and bring it forth. A rule and a reign and a dominion of God into every sphere of life. That's the call of the church. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. You hear me say it all the time. There is no such, the Bible does not mention a gospel of salvation. Crickets, I'll let that make some people uncomfortable because people get up. What are you talking about? It's not the gospel of salvation. Oh, 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 zzz, zzz, does not compute. Zzz, zzz, does not compute because that's what we're pounded with our whole life. It's the gospel of salvation. It's not the gospel of salvation. The Bible doesn't mention it. The Bible mentions the most common occurrence of the word gospel is gospel of the kingdom, the king's dominion, ruling and reigning and breaking into life. And where does the kingdom begin? It begins with salvation, but it doesn't end there. The rule and reign of God begins when you give your life to Christ. The dominion of God, the rulership of God, now comes into you. Salvation is the surrender of your life. I'm no longer ruler, you are. So the king's dominion now comes into me. The gospel of the kingdom is now in me. And that area of my life is now under the king's dominion. Then the believer is to take every other sphere of their life and bring it under the king's dominion. This is why we have this sort of uh, strange thing going on in the church. We have Christians, but all these areas of their life are out of control, and all these areas of their life are off-center because they've not taken the areas of their life and brought them under the king's dominion. Your time needs to come under the king's dominion. Your talent needs to come under the king's dominion. Your money needs to come under the king's dominion. Your relationships need to come under the king's dominion. I'll go even further. You want me to go further? I'm going to go further. Your sexuality needs to come under the king's dominion. It's true. This is why everything's out of control. We have Christians who were born again, saved, but every area of their life's out of control because they've not submitted that area unto the king's dominion. It is the gospel of the kingdom, the ruling reign of God by the power of the Spirit, influencing, activating, and bringing forth into every area of our life. That's what it is. We have Christians who are broke. When they, when they, well, Jesus was broke, pastor. He became poor so that you might become rich. Rich how? In every way. In every way. Blessed to be a blessing. What's blessing look like? I don't know. What's it look like to you? How big's your faith? According to your faith, so be it unto you. To whom much is given, much is required. Well, I want $10 million. Good. Believe God for it. Be faithful with the little. And begin to act and begin to pursue the much. But also, don't, don't, when he gives it to you, distribute it people want 10 million dollars they don't even have a plan what'd you do if jesus gave you 10 million dollars oh i don't know i'd give 10 percent of it okay duh not only not only if he gave you 10 million dollars here's my other thing is your life structured in such a way that he can actually give it to you no most people go i want a 10 million dollar business but if you were to walk in and look at their business their business is not structured in a way to handle 10 million dollars in volume it's true. Most people's lives, thinking, attitudes, actions, and the way that they live is not structured in such a way to handle the abundance that God truly wants to give. Well, yeah, we'll blame him. You want it, you've got to transform everything. Everything. I had a guy, I tell you the story all the time. He told me he wanted, this, he wanted this company. He wanted this company to do this much money. I told him begin to tithe. You want to know how to be blessed financially? You cannot avoid it without tithing. Oh, I don't believe that. Well, good luck. Good luck. You're gonna be the anomaly because it doesn't work. And it, it, it works only by these principles. You, you must tithe and you must give. And you must do it consistently. And I told him, and not just I did it for two weeks, now I'm not doing it. You know, no, dude, you need to go all in. You're gonna be a tither, you do it for 12 months, and you don't, and you you hold, you put your head down and you do the grind, and you give every dollar, you give it to the penny. You give it to the penny. I could line people up. I just had a guy here this morning. He, he ties down to everything he does. And he told me, he said, Pastor, I invested 50 dollars $60,000 last year just in the past few months. He just told me this, like right over there. He said, I invested about $60,000. I had to upgrade all of my equipment, and I didn't know where the money was going to come from. And he said, in the last month, I got all of the money that I invested back into my repairs on my business and then some. Right? He had to work for it. He had to seize the opportunities that God gave him. Jesus doesn't come up with a Reader's Digest check and go, here you go, balloons, confetti, poof. He shows up wearing work clothes. What if the tithe came not just with money, but it came with opportunity? You have to seize the opportunities that he presents to you. The guy's very faithful, gives the money, says, I don't know where I'm going to give this money. I just poured out all my money. had to repair my equipment. had to invest in these things in order for my business to keep running. I have no money. And he just told me within 30 days, God gave it all back to him. He he got it all back. How is that possible? Because he tides. Didn't you just get a job, Jeremiah? Was it an upgrade? Isn't it more money than you've ever made? He just came to me. I'm going to use you. I've known Jeremiah for years, so he, he can punch me if he wants to. I've known, you know, Jeremiah. Jeremiah's one of the founders' club. He's been here forever. Thank you. You know. He comes to me, he's like, man, I tithe, I just don't know how, you know, I'm just, just struggling to meet ends and everything, just I, just, I just don't think, I said, believe God, tell him what you want, and believe God, and he just came to me, that was like a month ago, and he just came to me like two weeks ago and said, I just got a job offer for more money than I've ever made in my life, right, and he was afraid, he wasn't sure if he could, if you were afraid to take it, you weren't sure, if, and I'm like, well, so whatever, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not, yeah, He's a man. He's not going to admit he was afraid. So anyway, <laughs> he was afraid to take it. You know, he wasn't sure where this was going to go. And I told him, if it's an open door and it's an opportunity, and need to take it, this is exactly what you've been believing God for. You know, you know oh, Lord, I need, uh, well, I don't want that. You, you get where I'm going with this? And I'm not make, trying to make this about giving, but I'm trying to make it about transformation. The prophets were, so we had these priestly ministers that were required to do certain things. Then you have these prophets that were eclectic people. There's very little room in our churches today for anybody a little offbeat. It's true. They're all high in town. I don't know if you all get out much. Most church I come from it, right? All dressed the same, khaki pants and polos if you're in the ministry. Bless God. An occasional Hawaiian shirt, you know? That was the MO. You look around the room, you could tell the pastor, where's, where's the pastors at? Well, they have khaki shirts and, or khaki pants and polos. So just find the people with khaki pants and polos, and you'll find them. Or if he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, that's the guy. There was uniform. There was nothing eclectic about it. Everything was uniformity. And I'm not against uniformity. Everything was branded. I'm not against branding. But we, we, we brand and we uniform so much that there's no room for anything on the margins. There's no room for anything eclectic or a little thing off-center. The prophetic comes with eclectic, outside of the norm. The prophets would prophesy into the nations with their words and they would prophesy with their actions. They were called seers. That's what the prophets were called, seers. The word prophet came later. But they were seers. And they're also called pedagogues, which means they were performance artists. They didn't just speak the word, they actually acted the word out. Jeremiah wa- or not Jeremiah Isaiah walked the nation naked, Tarzan style. You know what I'm saying? Walk the nation. Because, see, here's the deal. Israel valued the prophetic. Their whole culture was designed to value the prophetic because they knew that through the prophetic came the kingdom. And they would never see the kingdom without the prophetic. So they all valued the prophetic. All the way up through their kings. You see wicked kings honoring the prophet. You see Herod, who was not even a a Jew. He was an Edomite, but he was in that culture, valued the prophet. Didn't want to do anything to John because he knew John was a prophet of God. They, their whole culture valued the prophetic. They did. And so when they seen a prophet walking among them, they'd walk up to the prophet. Hey, man, what's with the loincloth? Why are you walking around naked? And he would say that truth would be exposed. Truth needs to be exposed. So they were pedagogues. They would live it out. You have a guy. So then you have this other guy's named name Hosea. And God says, go marry a prostitute. Try that one on. Man, that pastor's wife, man. I mean, I don't mean to talk, but she's a whore. I mean, she's a little slutty. God told the the spiritual leader of that time in that place to marry a prostitute. And we'd be like, that's not of God. It's not of God. He said, marry a prostitute. And he not only married a prostitute... That that prostitute was unfaithful to him, and she would go and constantly sell herself into prostitution, and she was on a slave block. She had accrued a debt, and she was being sold to a master as a prostitute on a slave block, and the Lord said, go buy her back. What is he doing? He's mirroring to the people, this is who you are, and this is who I am. You are an unfaithful people, constantly selling yourself into prostitution. Spiritual prostitution is you worshiping anything beyond Jesus. That's how God equates prostitution to him. Spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery is what he calls it. When we honor anything beyond him, anything that we esteem higher than Jesus is an idol. Period. Whatever the master passion is that drives your life is your idol. Crickets. Whatever the master passion is of your life, is it money that's your idol. Oh, we love Jesus. No, Jesus is everything. Everything. Everything, everything, everything. All things through him. Everything. Everything. We need to understand this. We need to teach this. And we need to develop our lives into this. The church doesn't teach. We teach teach this branded religiosity. We don't teach not just lifestyle Christianity. We don't teach naturally supernatural. We don't teach it. Therefore, we don't get it. And we have all kinds of people that live lives... Outside of what God would have them to do, they're driven not by the glory of Jesus, not by the honor, not by the love, not by the presence, not by the power, not by the purpose, not by the mandate, not by the calling. They're driven by their idols. Are they saved? Yeah, they're saved. But they keep sa- where they end up is like right where Gomer, who was his wife, his wife's name was Gomer. Ladies, don't ever mean your daughter Gomer. That's not a really you know Gomer. What's your name? Gomer. You know what I mean? It's not really a. You know, anyway, sorry. She finds herself on a slave block. So when we prostitute ourselves to these things, it's not going to lead to freedom. When we give ourselves to anything but Jesus, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Anything outside of that context that we pursue, not in Him and with Him, leads to bondage. Say, I want to pursue business. Great, do it with Him. I want relationship. I want a marriage. I want a home. Great, do it with Him. You know, I want a life of meaning and purpose and, and destiny. Great, do it with Him. Anything you do outside of him is going to lead you to a slave block. And here's the good news. Jesus will come and rescue you from the slave block every time. Every time. Yeah. And so he's telling, he's telling Hosea, marry the prostitute. And the people would be like, now that's weird. Why is that, why is that happening? And the Lord's going, well, that was, I think that's us. And I think the prophet would represent the Lord. So we're prostitutes. And the Lord is faithful, and the Lord marries an unfaithful people, and the Lord will pursue an unfaithful people, and the Lord will redeem an unfaithful people, and the Lord will will deliver an unfaithful people. I'm sorry, that's good news. That's good news. There's no one like Jesus. No one. You, You don't need to come to him and clean up. You don't need to clean up before you come to him. He'll come and get you. Gomer was sold naked on the slave block, they didn't sell them in clothes. They stripped them. Slaves were sold naked so that they could see the merchandise. And so Hosea goes and buys her, and she's standing there completely naked and exposed. There's a chapter in Isaiah that speaks exactly that. He said, I would call you. In quietness and peace, you would find freedom. In quietness and peace with me, you would find victory. But you would not. He said, I'm going to run. And the Lord goes, and run you shall. But the ones that pursue you will be faster than you they will overtake you and that you will find yourself naked standing on the top of a hill stripped down of everything exposed to the world and then the Lord goes but I'll wait for you so that I can be gracious to you wasn't God's intention that they run wasn't God's intention that they be overtaken wasn't God's intention that they lose everything in the pursuit of nothing but it is his intention to be gracious when those who find themselves in that situation call on him that is his intention He's Oh, come on. That's right. He's good. He's good. You say, is he that good? Yes, he's absolutely that good. He's that good. And so you have that. Then you have Ezekiel. Ezekiel's one of my favorites. I call him the punk rocker of the New Testament. Ezekiel's actually an intellectual. He is, he is, his, uh, when, when they study Ezekiel, they find that his book is longer, his book is more wordy, and that the structure of his sentences are very sophisticated in the original. So Ezekiel was insanely smart. And Jesus would minister, get him to minister like punk rocker style. He had to shave his hair into thirds. Imagine this. You think the Mohawk came into our generation? The Mohawk came with Ezekiel. Jesus, Jesus Mohawk, Ezekiel was the first one rocking a Mohawk. The Lord said, I want you to go before the people. So the people, they're like, oh, here comes the prophet. And the people would stop, and they'd wait to see what the prophet was going to do. It was kind of like this curiosity show. And so the prophet would come, and he'd shave a third of his hair right down here. Then he'd take a sword. The Lord said, take, the, take a third of your hair and I want you to cut it up with a sword. And I want you to tell him, the enemy's at the door. If you do not repent, a third of you will be destroyed with the sword. they go, hey, you coming back tomorrow? And he'd be like, I'll be here tomorrow. Next day he come, shave a third of his head. And the Lord said, put it in a pile and light it on fire. <laughs> if you don't repent, a third of you will be destroyed by fire. So I tell people, I don't know if he shaved it like this you know, kind of Depeche Mode style, or if he went this way, this way, and kind of left a mohawk. I kind of think he went mohawk. That's kind of what I see, but anyway. Then the third day, he comes and he, sh- he shaves his third, the last third of his hair, and the Lord says, throw it into the wind. And he takes his hair and throws it into the wind. And he said, and if you don't repent, a third of you will be scattered to the wind. And then he went, peace out, and dropped the mic. Okay, that's how it went. He did more than that. He did a lot of different things. But Ezekiel is one of the biggest pedagogies. Almost His whole ministry, he was acting something out. Crazy. You have John. John's showing up in camel fur, leather belt, right? Sort of Neanderthal biker, eating eating locusts and wild honey, talking about judgment and fire, kind of a crazy thing. He lived in the wilderness to symbolize that the word of God had left them. The word of God was not among them. The word of God was, 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 was apart from them. So the people couldn't get the word within their culture. They had to go out and find John. Then we got Jesus. He told him, my resurrection is a prophetic sign to you. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. My resurrection will be a pedagogue. It will be a performance art to testify against you. Jesus spits in people's eyes. How'd you like that one? He's going to heal you. He spits on you. How many would be offended at that? Most of you, if you were blind, you wouldn't care if he spit on you, dunked you in water. You wouldn't, you wouldn't care whatever he did, as long as he did it. It was a prophetic act. He blew on them when they received the Holy Spirit. Did he have to blow on them? No. Did he have to spit in somebody's face? No. But he did it. They acted out the word. They demonstrated it. So if you don't think Jesus is into acting things out, he's not into participation. We do prophetic acts here all the time. I want you to take this. I want you to offer it to the Lord. I want you to lift it up, and I want you to release it. And people stand there and go, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. That's so dumb. Where is that in the Bible? All through it. Pick where? Genesis to Revelation. Revelation. Pick something. It's all through the scriptures. He acts it out. We do it by prophetic act. I want you to see yourself in a doorway. I want you to step through a doorway. I want you to step out from where you are. Well, I'm not doing that. Great. Stay the same. Not my problem. Not my circus. Not my monkeys. Just trying to help you out. We're too religious to do it. Too religious. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I'm not doing that. Go and dip in the Jordan seven times. I'm not doing that. Not me, no, not doing. that's not digno. I'm not going to do that. See, God, God takes the time to bring an honor, and it was a, I'll tell you some things, Jeremiah, you're going to remember this, you're, uh, Jeremiah, you're on the radar here for some reason today, but the Lord told me a while back ago, because we're spirit-filled, we believe in the spirit, the power, the presence, the purposes of God through his spirit in his church today, modern times, and when you do that, you tend to get a little eclectic people. Anybody been around spirit-filled churches? Yes. Okay. All the eclectics seemed like magnets. Woo, right there, right? Somebody said the fruit flakes and nuts all kind of go. And that's why a lot of churches, they don't want to do spirit-filled because it gets a little too cornflaky around here. Well, Jesus likes it, so guess what? He likes it. He's not freaked out. He's not feeling weird. And there was some weird stuff going on. Not this one that I'm going to tell you. but there was some, and I, and I was having a hard time with it, being the religious and dignified person that I am. I was looking at it going, I don't know, man. You know, and I would tell the Lord, I go, what about this, Lord? What about this? And they were doing it in the service. It was some stuff going on after service, people praying for each other and just some just some really, you know, sort of offbeat, off center things going on. And I heard the Lord say to me, Kevin, make room for the eclectic. Honor the eclectic, make room for the eclectic, the ones that are a little offbeat. So one day I'm going over there and Jeremiah's over there and you guys had made a, a mantle. Remember that? out of like palm fronds or something like that. So they go and make a palm frond thing. They make this cape out of palm fronds. And they're all over there. There's a whole group of them. They're standing like right over there. And they're praying for each other. And they keep putting. I'm seeing them, and they're putting a mantle on each other, and then everybody's praying over them. And then the next person would go in the center, and they'd put the, they'd, put the, they'd put the palm frond cape on that one, and they'd all pray over each other. And I'm like, what in the world are you guys doing? Well, we're believing God. We're transferring mantles, you know, all this stuff. And it was just this crazy experience that was going on there. That's a little eclectic. That's a little offbeat, but it's truth. There's truth. There's transference in truth. It's a spiritual act. It's a prophetic act done before the Father, and he likes it. He likes it. If he didn't like it, you wouldn't see it in the Word, and if you did, you wouldn't see it anywhere near as consistently as you do. So they're going to put a mantle on, you know, and do that. And you're like, I'm not putting that mantle on me. Palm fronds, what's that mean? This is like how dumb we are. We're Christian dumb right? I'm all in. Words and actions. So the time that they're in, there's a geopolitical changes that are going on on the scene, some some things that are happening. And really what's happening is that whole region is being threatened by a Babylonian army. The Babylonians are are about to conquer the Assyrians. So this is just the timeline of history. And Jesus is, Israel is right in the middle of it. What ended up happening is Assyria was the world power, Assyria went down into Judah. The Lord told them, don't go down into Judah. They did it anyway. The Lord struck the Assyrian army. They lost over a third of their army. They limped back home, back up to Assyria, and they were never as powerful ever again. And so their power now is waning. And now you have the Babylonian army coming to the surface. And the Babylonians see how weak the Assyrians now are. And so the, Assy- the Babylonians go to attack the Assyrians. Well, they're not just going to attack the Assyrians. They ultimately want to control that whole area. So they want to go down into Egypt. And the only way to go down into Egypt is through Israel. Israel's like a land bridge between the two continents. And so what's happening is now the Babylonians have conquered the Assyrian Empire, and they're about to press down into Judah. Ultimately, they want to take Egypt, but they're going to come through Judah. And the Lord says, look, trouble's at the gate. And right before this happens, there was a good king. His name was Josiah, and Josiah brought revival. So let's understand what revival is. Revival is God's people awakening to God's purposes. And we can put it a little broader. God's people, awakening to God's presence, God's purpose, and God's power. That's revival. But you are to do something with it. Revival is supposed to lead to reformation. If revival does not lead to reformation, it is fruitless. And so Josiah initiates a revival. and The people wake up. So what's it look like? Wow, I'm a son and a daughter. I think I should probably live differently. Wow, I have an inheritance I think I should actually see what's there. You've awakened to something. Somebody goes, "Wow, I'm a sinner. I should actually give my life to Christ." And they experience a revival, an awakening to God's purpose, presence and power. And so Josiah had brought a revival to the nation. They had awakened, but there was no reformation. They did not reform the injustices that were going on in the land, so the revival could not sustain itself. There were social, economic, there were systemic injustices all of the systems of their society had become infected and corrupt. Abuses of power. The Bible would use the word injustice. So when justice is used, justice is when you have power and you use it correctly. That's called justice. Injustice means you have power and you use it to abuse, control, dominate, or use it in a way that's not right. That's called injustice. One of the things God tells the nation, and I'm not saying this is what's happening in America, but it should be an alarm clock, is that one of the things that God tells a nation is when you depart from me, when you depart from me, I mean, I don't know if you guys realize this nation was founded with a covenant. One nation under God, and it wasn't God as you understand him to be. Our founding fathers were evangelical Christians, almost all of them. Almost all of them were even, and you say, how do you know that? I didn't hear that on CNN. Well, you're not going to hear it on CNN, the historical record is, 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 is beyond debate. This nation was, it's the only nation in the world that was founded on the gospel, period. We pray at the opening of the Senate. Our, our, there's the Ten Commandments are on the wall of the Supreme Court. I mean, where we're, we're in the world do you get that? Nowhere. Our nation was founded on, the, on a covenant with Jesus Christ. Everything was founded on that. It was un, it's debatable only by the idiots, Okay. Jesus said, Don't call anybody a fool unless they're a fool. That's, that's pretty much it. You know, so, well, the Bible says, Don't call anybody a fool. Well, unless they are a fool, when Jesus called the, told the Pharisees, You're fools. It's foolishness to think anything otherwise. But what he tells them is when a nation abandons the Lord, they're going to be threatened on their borders. And he tells them the system, the internal systems, are going to become infected. And you're going to know because there's pressure on your borders, pressure on your borders. Something's wrong. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. And your internal systems are going to become infected. Justice will not prevail. The system will become paralyzed. Nothing will get done. Violence will be in your streets. Clear indicator that a nation is pulled away from the Lord. Clear indicator. We have systemic injustice in our country. The court systems, not all of them, but for the most part, when you have systems that are corrupt, when you have judges that do not do according to the law but will order something in line in order to get a conviction, regardless of what's in front of them, that's injustice. Entrusted with power, yet choosing to abuse it because of their own selfish position or their own selfish selfish viewpoint. I'm not anti-police. My father was a cop, so let me go on the record. I'm not talking about an institution. I'm talking about abuses of power. When we have police officers that choke a man out on the street for selling cigarettes and the guy dies of asphyxiation and nothing happens, that's injustice. I don't care how big the check is you wrote to that family. You've murdered that guy. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they choke him till he passes out and he asphyxiates and dies on a street. Is that not abuse of power? Is that what they're entitled to do? Is that what we empower the police to do? To abuse citizens? Are the police a paramilitary force? They're a shield, they're not a sword. It's important to understand that. We have a cop who has a guy sitting down for a traffic violation, and the guy freaks out because he owes child support, so he knows he's going to jail. He runs, the cop draws his gun and unloads a clip and shoots him seven times. And they interview the cop, and he goes, I don't know why he ran. The problem isn't lethal force. The problem is is that's the first place you go. You're not supposed to go to lethal force immediately. Let the guy run. You got his driver's license in your hand. You don't think you can find him? You got to shoot him seven times for no unknown reason? I'm sorry, people. That's injustice. That's injustice. So whatever side you go, Black Lives Matter, but I, don't keep a, I don't really care about Black Lives Matter or anything like that. What I care about is justice. And I care about saying what it is. It is injustice. When you have political powers that exist within our country that paralyze our nation, and the political powers, this is our system, is designed, Democrat, Republican, or, you know, independent, whatever, whatever the soup is, their purpose is to come together to benefit the people. That is the entire purpose. They're to set aside political differences in order to benefit the nation and its, pos- its posterity, its future, its people. That's the purpose. But we have political systems that do nothing but entrench themselves to preserve Democrat, Republican, Independent, all guilty as charged, yeah. to not benefit the nation, but to support and sustain their influence within the government. They're self-serving, and it paralyzes the nation. And the country is paralyzed. And it is a it is all of these things are representative of an infection. And the infection isn't out there. The infection is because we we are raising and treating and being a god. We're a godless culture. We we really are. Evangelism's all but dead in our land. It really is. Billy Graham was the last evangelist, coast to coast, and he stopped evangelizing in the 90s. They're, America needs a revival. It's us. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it is leadership. It is revival. It is a, the gospel has to be preached. It has to be proclaimed. And what ends up happening, especially within the churches, the churches become internally focused. I'm on a rant, so God help me. <laughs> Bear with me. The churches become internally focused. The churches don't want to upset the culture. They don't. Oh, we don't want to be not liked. I mean, dude, that is, that is the mo of the American church right now. We do not want to be disliked. Jesus said, "Be weary when all men speak well of you." We don't want to be liked. We don't I mean it's like, oh, we, Jesus is the champion. Jesus is you understand him to be. I mean, there's no sin, righteousness, judgment. There's no one calling out what's wrong. The church should be at the forefront saying, "This is unjust. That's unjust." What happened to that man right there is unjust. That is a systemic problem. That is unjust. That is not right. That is not right. We should be calling that out because it's truth, and we should present what is just. We're the light of the world. Sorry if I'm offending any of you. On your way out the door, you can say, well, it's the last time I'm here, man. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm just giving it to you from the Scriptures. This is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a problem within his country, and he doesn't have an answer. And the Lord is showing him this is a sign of an internal infection. That's what what this is. And he says, don't you see it, Lord? Don't you care? Look around. Nothing's happening. And the Lord says, yeah, I got it under control, Habakkuk. I'm going to bring the Babylonians down, and I'm going to sweep everybody out of the land. That's what he said. Israel's covenant was unto the Lord, but Israel's covenant was also unto the land. They were covenant unto the Lord, but their Lord told them, as long as you're faithful with me, that land is yours. But if you're unfaithful to me, the land itself will throw you out. Deuteronomy says it very plainly. And they were there 490 years they were supposed to do something God had asked them, give the Sabbath rest. They didn't do it. And so God spends the last 150 years at this point sending prophets to them, telling them, listen, if you guys don't stop and you guys don't just... and, And it was really what it was, was it was from religion to relationship. That was the whole summons. He told them, like, stop, like, pretending. God's, you know, you pretend... And then you go and be this. I mean, you don't have this depth of relationship with the Lord. God is not your consuming passion. Jesus is not your all. And he's trying to get them away from religion and get them to go unto relationship. And they wouldn't do it. And so now the bell is tolling. And Jesus is telling, the Lord is telling Habakkuk that the enemy is going to come. He's going to sweep them out. And why is he going to do that? He said, I'm going to sweep the land out. Get rid of all this nonsense. I'm going to let the land rest. And in 70 years, I'm going to re-seed the land with faithful people. And that's what he did with Nehemiah. He sweeps the land out, Ezra and Nehemiah start bringing back people who will come. What's interesting is they go away to Babylon, God t- the, the nation becomes prisoners, they're taken to a foreign land, they go off, they lose everything, they get reestablished there, and 70 years later, only a handful of them want to come back, because they had ing- integrated themselves into the Babylonian culture, and they didn't want to leave, and so only the ones who really hungered for the Lord wanted to come back. There's a group of people... I, don't, I can't remember the name right offhand, but the group of people that Joshua made a covenant with. He made a covenant with them. I don't know if you guys know the story. He made a covenant with a group of people. And God said, don't make any covenants. But they, they, you know, they made their bags look, they look like they were from far away when they were right around the corner. And they go, oh, hey, we come from far away. We want to make a covenant with the Lord. And Joshua makes a covenant with them. Right? And it turns out they were neighbors and that they were supposed to occupy their land as well. And so the Lord tells Joshua, he said, didn't I tell you not to do that? And he's like, oh, well, I didn't know. And he said, so from now on, they were to be cutters of wood and hewers of water. Their nation will be cutters of wood and hewers of water. Well, for what reason? They were to cut the wood for the sacrifice, and they were to draw the water for the, for the temple. And so this group of people, whom some would see as being enslaved, were actually been given an honor. And God gave them an honor to work, to minister, When the priest ministered, God gave them an opportunity to bring the fire for the altar, to bring the water. The priest had to constantly wash, and so they were constantly in need of fresh water. And these were the people who were bringing it. When they were exiled to Babylon, that people, that group, non-Jews, were the first ones who stepped up and go, let's go back. We want to go back. And do you know why? Because they had encountered glory. They'd encountered power. And once you encounter glory and you encounter power, you're never the same. You develop an appetite for glory. You develop an appetite for his presence. You develop an appetite for his power. It's true. And that was the first group of people. They're all kind of going, oh, I don't know. And this group sat up and said, man, my grandfather used to tell me when the glory fell and all of this stuff happened and the power of God was present and his love was everywhere. I want to go back. I want to experience it. They were the first in line to go back. And God began to seed the land with new people. What basically is going on is he's telling Habakkuk, what I want to do, what you currently have cannot support it. What if God was trying to bring change into your life because what you currently have cannot support what he wants to do? What if that was what was going on? And you think he's turning your world upside down. What if he was reconfiguring everything because what you currently have cannot support what he wants to do? Next slide. Two slides up. Go two slides forward, please. Yeah, there you go. He didn't like the answer, so he told him we sweep the land, right? He didn't like the answer. Why didn't he like the answer? Because this is how Jesus works. You ready? He roots out. He pulls down. He destroys. He throws down before he builds in plants. Haha. <laughs> what if you go, Lord, help my marriage. Jesus, I want you to come in and help my marriage. He's going to go, okay. Are we all in on this? Because the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to tear down. I'm going to root out. I'm going to pull down. I'm going to destroy. And then I'm going to build and plant. It's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to work with anything that's pre-existing. You guys ever see the show, The Prophet? I don't know if you ever watch that, right? There's a show on TV called The Prophet, and this guy's a businessman, and he goes into businesses and says, I'll make a deal with you for a certain percentage. But one of the things he says is, I'm 100% in charge. And he takes these businesses and multiplies them 10, 20 times, right? Because he knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. If you want him to come in and renew, he will. But he's 100% in charge. He's not going to work on 51%. He's not going to work on 49%. He's going to work on 100%. So we talked about this first service. We talk about measure, and we talk about fullness. And you go, well, I want the Lord to take care of my marriage. Well, he will, within measure. And what you'll live by is measure. Then you're going to go and need another measure. Then you're going to go and need another measure. Because he's, going to, he's good. He's going to take care of you. You're going to come to him. He's going, okay, let me give you a measure for that. I'll give you a measure for that. Or you can go to and go, I want fullness. There's business people here. We tend to attract like entrepreneurial people. Thank God, bless you all. They, but pe- entrepreneurs want to, want to grow their business, understandably. You go, Lord, I want the Lord to help me grow my business. Well, let him be 100% in charge. Let him do that, right? You say, well, I don't want him to do that. I don't want to kind of do this, these certain things, so I just want him to help me. Well, when you go to him, he's going to help you. He never says no to help. He's an ever-present help in time of need. If you need help, He will help you. He will always be kind to you. He will always provide for you. But the provision that He gives is measure. He wants to bring fullness, but He cannot bring fullness unless He does a complete and total restoration. We invite him into our houses, right? So this is what it looks like. Jesus comes in, comes into the house. Lord, I want you to live here. This is you. You can live in me. You can live in my world. You can have everything that I have. And he walks in and he goes, Kevin, the cabinets are for Micah. Not my style. They got to go. Your living room's too small. I need to blow some walls out here and make it bigger. In fact, I'm going to have to take the roof off because I need to add two and three stories here. And you know what? I want a guest house out back. I'd like a polo field over here. I want a gazebo. And I'd like to put a swimming pool in. And that's going to require extensive renovations. And it's going to require a lot of time by you. And it's going to require a lot of sacrifice by you. Are you willing? Are you willing? Oh, yeah, Lord. Then he comes in and starts ripping out your Formica cabinets. But I like those Formica cabinets. He rips off your cheap roof. I like that roof. I feel so vulnerable now, Lord. You've torn the roof off of my life. I feel so vulnerable. I'm afraid. He's working. If you've asked him and he starts dismantling everything, you can be assured he's at work. It's true. But he's not going to make that deal with you unless you go all in. And when you tell him to stop and you don't want to go any further, he stops. So there's a lot of people, there's still a lot of Christians still living in shanty houses because they don't measure Measure because they don't let the Lord come in and do the refab, or they let the Lord come in and start the work, and then they decide it's too much for them and they don't want Him to continue. And so the house is half finished, and they're still exposed, and there's no cabinets, and there's no plumbing, and there's no toilet because you don't let Him finish the work because it becomes too uncomfortable for you. You don't like the smell, you don't like the dust, you don't like the time that it takes. I got to sleep in another room. Oh, I don't like that. I got to eat my meals out, I don't get to use my kitchen. So what? He doesn't always give you answers, but he gives you assurance. We need to understand how Jesus is working in our lives. Because if you understand how he's working, you can partner with him. If you don't understand how he's working, he thinks you're, you think you're, he, one of the things he tells us is he prunes the branches. The vine dresser prunes the branches. And they, what they do when they prune a branch or when they prune grapevines is they strip it down to the stalk. They cut everything off of it. And another thing is they clip the direction that it's going in. You're going in this direction, and the pruner clips the direction that you're going in in order to make it go in new directions. Dead, damaged, diseased is the three things that a pruner cuts off. So when God's pruning you, he's going to cut out of you what's dead. He's going to cut out of you and call forth what's out of you what's damaged, and he's going to cut out for you. He's going to make you confront what's diseased in your life. Yeah, we don't want to see it, but if you want to be whole, that's what you got to do. You got to confront it brutally. And then the other one, the other one, this is a big one that a lot of people don't know, is he cuts off any branch that grows back in on itself. So all the branches that are pointing back in on the stalk, the pruner cuts those too. So whatever's all about you, that's what he's going to prune. And you go, no, I like these branches growing in on myself. Well, then what will happen is all these branches will start tangling themselves around the stalk, and you'll find yourself suffocating in a world of selfishness, in a world of self-consumption, and you'll go... Lord. And they'll go, Well, okay, Kevin, I, mean, I got to cut the stuff that's all about you. Well, no, I like it all about me. Okay. Stay right where you are. That's how he works, man. That's how he works. He's a vine dresser. Whatever's not bearing fruit, he gets rid of it. He's in the restoration business. He takes shant- He takes your little shanty. He wants to build it into a mansion, but he doesn't do it overnight. It's not overnight. Anybody ever have remodeling? Anybody ever did remodeling? Victor, you want to testify how many times he's remodeled that condo? How long did it take you? Years. Yeah. Bad contractors, bad experience over and over again. Bunch of nonsense. But it took him way longer than he expected. Like I'll be in there in two weeks. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> it takes a long time. Jesus is faithful. We have to commit to the process, and you have to be willing to give him everything that he needs to do what it is that he needs to get done. And if you don't, you, you listen. What I say to you, ninety. 90- it's proven. 4 to 6% of people execute against the word of God. So when the word of God is spoken, and a decree is given, and a direction is made, less than 6% actually do anything with it. So it's 100%, it's bankable to realize that 9.5 out of 10 aren't going to do anything with what I'm saying. That's okay. You still need to hear it. You do. You have to go all in with the Lord. You have to be willing to go there and you have to beginning take sections of your life and say, okay, Lord, I can't give you everything, but I can give you this right now. This is the area that I'd like you to work in, and I'll go all in on this room. Will you work? Yes, he will. 100%. You've got to make the commitment. You've got to let him happen. It's true. It's good news. We have hope, man. We have the Lord who doesn't want anything from us. He wants everything for us. He wants something. He doesn't want anything from you. You think he needs anything? I think Jesus is up there going, man, I just... I really wish I had Kevin's car. Man, I would just—my life would be complete if I had that car, her hairdo, her this, her that. You know, I mean, he—he's not working like that. He tears down. We get anxious. What do you do with your anxiety? You pray. Bible says, if we cast our cares upon Him, He cares for us. If we do this, be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. He will, give us the peace of, he will give us a peace that passes understanding. You can't carry your anxieties. You can't carry your pressures. You have to give them to the Lord, and you have to thank him that he loves you enough to do something about it. It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and then you have to let the peace that he gives on top of that, he gives you an assurance. He can't always give you an answer. You're like, I need an ass- I need an answer. Well, if he told you, I'm going to sweep everything out of your life, Kevin, and I'm going to tear this thing down to the foundation, and then I'm going to build it again, you'd freak out you'd completely freak out. So what he does is he's like, well, you can't handle what I'm about to do. <laughs> you, can't, you can't deal with what I'm about to, to, to accomplish because you're going to argue with me. You're going to disagree. You're going to think you've got a better plan. So instead of me giving you all of the answers, I'm going to give you an assurance that I'm working and then I'm going to make it right. It's true. We pray for loved ones and sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. And if Jesus were to tell you, Lord, save my son. Lord, reach my person. Lord, take my family. And he said, I'm going to do it. How are you going to do it? I'm going to their, their, let their life become living hell, and then I'm going to show up in the midst of their darkness. I'm going to give them over to their sin, and I'm going to let them eat the consequences and the fruit of their sin. I'm going to let them inha- have everything that they are wanting, and then I'm going to show them hope. Well, I don't think that's a good plan. Can't, you know, why Why? Why do you have to let them Why do you have to let the consequences of sin come upon them? Because they're not going to change any other way. People don't, people don't change from pride without consequence. Humility, you either humble yourself, the Bible says, or you will be humbled. It's true. And so we begin to pray for our loved ones, we begin to pray for situations, we begin to pray for circumstances. Right? Lord, I don't get on with my boss. Be kind to him. Serve him. Love him. And all of a sudden the guy gets worse. Why is he worse? Well, because the Lord's going to expose him for who he is, and then he's going to get fired, and God's going to put a new boss in there. Yeah. I mean, could it be? I could tell you stories off what I just said there. A yeah. the person had an antagonist within the office, and she kept telling the boss, this guy this, this guy this, this guy this, this guy this. And the Lord just kept telling her, do it like this, and he, the boss wouldn't And so the guy kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then finally the boss came around and said, hey, you're a problem. You don't belong here anymore. And the whole situation changed. But it had to get worse before it got better, right? And so she's praying, asking God do something about it. He's like, I am. How are you doing anything? It's getting worse. (laughs) Because he's rooting out, tearing down, building, and then he's going to plant. So here's what happens. So Habakkuk gets all this bad news. He begins to pray. He begins to seek the Lord. The Lord tells him this is what's going to happen. And here we go. Prayer releases the pressure and transfers the burden. So when we pray, we give the pressure off, okay, because we feel this pressure. And like somebody said, like a hot water heater, hot water heaters have a pressure valve. There's a guy, there's a story of a plumber who who closed off the hot water valve. The plumber came upon the house and the the owner, homeowner had closed off the hot water, the the, the pressure valve because it drips water every now and then. Anybody has a home, a hot water heater, you'll notice that every now and then that little valve will drip. You think, oh, there's a problem. So the guy decided he's going to, but what it's doing is it's releasing pressure. And the plumber went in and he had to realize if we don't, you know, dude, you, you completely screwed up the pressure valve. If we don't, I need to fix this now. Your, your hot water heater is going to be a bomb because the pressure builds up and it explodes. What prayer is is it's a release of the pressure that you're feeling. You begin to release the pressure that you're feeling unto him. Prayer also is a transference of burden. You're carrying the burden and you're transferring the burden. Hey, back up. Where are you going? You got me at the last slide. (laughs) Can you back up? Yeah, no, maybe. There There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Okay, So here it is. Habakkuk goes, I'm going to transfer the burden. I'm going to relieve the pressure. What he does is he goes, I will stand on my watch. I will set myself in the tower, and I watch to see what the Lord will answer me. The first thing he does is he goes, I need to hear from the Lord. I want to hear. I need a word from the Lord. I need to hear from the Lord. So the first thing he does is he has determination. A lot of people don't hear from the Lord because they're not determined. We're lazy. We just are. Well, I think I should hear from God. Maybe I'll hear from the Lord. I don't know. It's a good idea. I want to get around to it. He said, no way, man. I'm going to hear from God. This situation is crushing me. This situation is, hearing, is, is overwhelming to me. I need a word from the Lord. And he said, I will set myself, I will rise up, and I will hear from God, and I will get a vision from him. I will get a word from him, and I will answer him according to the word that he gives me. Here's God's phone number. Call on me, and I'll answer you. I'll show you great and mighty things that you know not of. Jeremiah 33.3, 3, that's Jesus' phone number. You should write that one down. He said, I'm going to answer you when you call on me and the second thing he says is he says you're going to seek me and find me when you do it with all your heart when you passionately pursue me i'll be found of you when it's not this issue of indifference so we see we see it again in the new testament this is again a thing about his nature jesus gravitates to passion he doesn't gravitate to need he gravitates to faith and he gravitates to desire that's where he goes He had Bartimaeus on the road. Bartimaeus is like, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is cruising right on by. He probably went, hey, what's up, Bart? Kept right on going. Only when Bartimaeus cried out all the louder did Jesus stop and come to him. You have the woman with the issue of blood. Two famous stories. I share them all the time. She pushed through the crowd. She laid hold of the hem of his garment. And Jesus called her daughter. She was determined to get what she knew rightfully belonged to her. Only place... amazing thing to really meditate on it's a, such a simple thing but it's really powerful it is the only place where God called any woman a daughter the only place in the New Testament because she knew healing was her inheritance she knew the son of righteousness comes with a healing in his wing he wore the talith he wore the prayer shawl Jesus walking down the street and the hem of his garment the hem of the prayer shawl when they would pray they would lift with hands that they would pray like this and it would make wings So Jesus, the son of righteousness, is coming with healing. Where's the healing? In his wings. So she said, i got to touch the hem of his garment. i got to touch his wing. And she pushed through the crowd with determination and touched the hem of his garment. She knew it belonged to her. It was her inheritance. She did not ask. You understand? She didn't beg. She laid hold of her inheritance. It belongs to me. And I'm going to receive what belongs to me. I'm a do- and he looked at her and he said, daughter. This is one who knows what belongs to her. This is one who is determined to access what belongs to her. Not timid, not tepid. She knows what I said and she knows it's hers. And she's willing to press in and get what belongs to her by birthright. How determined are you? <laughs> Kingdom suffers violence. The violent take it by force. God has set before you the kingdom, the dominion, the rule and reign of God, the inbreaking of his power, his kingdom into every aspect of your life. And we're to pursue that. But the problem is, is that the pursuit of the kingdom, ladies and gentlemen, is what suffers violence. The devil is strategically and violently, violently opposed to the kingdom. Violently. So you're going to purse in to get what's yours. You're going to have to go through some dark. He's not going to give you a clean run at your inheritance. If you think he's going to give you a clean run, you don't know what's going on. You have no idea. And the enemy, I use this all the time, but it's worth saying again, Satan is not anti-Jesus. I'll let that offend a few of you, so I'll just throw that out there. Satan is not anti-Jesus. He's anti-Christ. He's against the anointing. The anointing is the power of God. That's what he's against. Oh, he loves Jesus. Turn on CNN, MSNBC, any of these. anybody who's like offbeat and, 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 and uh, secular. Oh, they like Jesus. Jesus is a wonderful person. Oh, yeah, what a nice guy. You know, he's up there with Gandhi and Buddha and, you know, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a great guy. But what they oppose is the inbreaking of the kingdom. What they oppose is the inbreaking of power. The absolute fact that Christ alone is what saves you. The absolute fact that healing and dominion, that all of the power of God coming into the world. That's what they oppose. And the problem is, is that the church actually partners with that. I just had a guy, I just I just had this conversation last week, ten days ago, I was talking to him about it, and he was ridiculing a guy that I know. Ridiculing him. I said, Really? Talking about false healings and all this stuff. And I said, Really? I go, how many people have you prayed for? I asked him. He had no answer, of course. I said, how many people have you prayed for? I said, how many people have you seen healed? How many people have you seen, not just witnessed from outside, but how many people have you seen the Holy Spirit manifest healing through you? Why? He had none. I said, yet you, you have no experience, and you have little to no knowledge in that, yet you feel empowered to be the global critic on what's real and what's not. You're an idiot. You have no experience in it, but you feel that you're credentialed to speak against it. And I told them, Jesus said, the devil's not anti-Christ, he's, anti-G- he's not anti-Jesus, he's anti-Christ. I said, he opposes the inbreaking of power. I said, in the last days, men will be lovers of professors of godliness, but denying the power. They're not denying Jesus, they deny power. And I told him, you partner with an anti-Christ spirit. The church partners with the spirit of the age. When we oppose power, it's wrong. Theologians go, well, I don't know about that, Pastor. Well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Are you trying to say we're not, we're not saved? That's not what I'm saying. You're in league with the enemy. Born-again believers in partnership with the Spirit that opposes the breaking of his kingdom. Not everything that's done in the name of power is correct, but that does not mean we get rid of it. We're so afraid of making Judas's. I tell this to my wife all the time. The church is so afraid of making a Judas that we, fail. we can't make Peter's, James, and John's. Because we're so locked down, we can't make a Judas. Yeah? And not making Judases, you also don't make the other 11. You also don't invoke an Apostle Paul among you either. You're so locked down on religious stupidity and nonsense. It's ridiculous. Opposers of power. Last day church. Last day church is what we are, and we just bark it out wife was asking me, did you have to say it? I'm like, I couldn't help myself. God help me. <laughs> I couldn't help myself, man. I was like, really? Really? Oh, those are false miracles. Those are manufactured miracles. I'm like, okay. All right. Maybe. Maybe not. You know, I've seen miracles. I've watched them. I've participated in them. You know, you're going to tell me that that's not real? How much experience do you have? None? Oh, you have zero experience, but you're the, you're the authority. You're the one, you, you are the one the church needs to hear from, you. I told him, you need to spend your energy. I said, you're a smart guy. I was a young guy. I said, you're a smart guy. You should spend your time trying to reach a broken culture rather than feeding the cynics within the church. <laughs> I said, you have to take a risk and get out of the cultural confines that you feel comfortable in because you say this and all of the cynics go around and go, yeah. The discontented go, yeah, you're right. Feeding the discontented and the cynics. Your your, your energies are better served somewhere else. Sorry about that. A little rant of mine. (laughs) Next slide. He has determination. The next thing he has is isolation. He said, I'm going to go up to a tower. This is crazy. He didn't go to a field. He didn't go to the woods. He didn't go to the river. He went up to a tower. Habakkuk is saying, I have to rise above the level of this world. I have to get in touch with a thinking that is beyond what I'm currently experiencing. I need to see the situation from a different perspective. So he goes up into a tower. He silences all voices but the Lord's. You have access to the mind of Christ, Christian. Do you have any idea what kind of a tower that is? The Lord is a strong what? Tower. The mind of Christ. We have an ability to enter into the Spirit and rise above our level of thinking that is beyond the norm. I know about you. When I'm in the Spirit, I feel like I'm a genius. I'm serious. Then I get out of the Spirit and I go, well, maybe I'm not that smart after all. But when I'm in the Spirit, I'm like, wow. I think I could learn calculus right now. We have to go into the mind of Christ. The Lord will give you answers to your problems. He'll give you solutions. He'll show you. He'll give you an answer. If you'll rise above the level of this world, you can choose human thinking if you want to, or you can choose the divine power that's been granted to you. The mind of Christ. He silences all voices. The Lord speaks through Logos, and He speaks through Rhema. Logos is the written word. Rhema is the revealed word of the Spirit. The Rhema does not come but by logos. So people weren't around going, I got all this Rhema, but they don't have any logos. I question the Rhema that they're speaking from. The first place God speaks is through His Word. The second place He speaks is through His Spirit. The third place He speaks is through circumstances. And I would say, probably in that order. So you get Rhema, you get revelation. But most people are going to get revelation out of the word. God's going to speak a word through his word. He's going to give you a revelation into it. And he's going to show you how to apply that word or what that word means in your circumstance. Other times he gives you revelation. Dr. Tim's here. He's, He's in Europe right now. But he told me, he said, man, I would just begin to believe God. He was healing people. And he was doing all of these like homeopathic medicines and different things like that. And he said, I would believe God. And I'd say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, I'd go to sleep. And he said, I would wake up with a revelation of what I was supposed to do. I would wake up, and I would have a revelation. The Lord would tell him, do this, do this, do this. Rhema. It's hard to hear anything without affirmation, so I'm going to give you a little secret, right? You guys want a little key? I'm going to give you a little personal secret. And as I like to tell people, what I'm telling you is for free, but it costs me a lot to get the knowledge, right? So what I'm about to tell you seems like, that's so simple. That's so, really? Okay, but it costs me a lot to get it. So some of you are going to value it, but you need to pay attention to anything. You're going to pay attention to this. Somebody wake up from the nap, man. It's time to hear. So anyway, so like one of the things when you go to get a word from the Lord, you have to get in his presence. First of all, is get in his spirit. And when you're in his spirit, don't immediately go with the need. Don't go, Lord, I need this. Lord, I need that. Don't, go, don't immediately go there. The Lord says, I, have no, I know what you need of even before you ask. What you need to do when you get in his presence, you get in his spirit, is you need to begin to let the Lord speak over you. You need to begin to let the Lord love you. Why? Because that's the first thing he wants to do. We want answers. He wants relationship. And so we come before him. We just, like, we just begin to honor him. We begin to come into his presence. I'm like, Lord, just speak over me. Just speak life over me. Just begin to affirm me. And he'll begin to speak over you. And he'll begin to affirm you. And out of that love and affirmation will come your instruction. Out of that love and affirmation will come your direction. And out of that love and affirmation will come your correction. A lot of times he's going to correct you. But you're not going to be able to even hear the correction until he's affirmed you. You're my son. I love you. I'm with you. Now we need to deal with this. This is what he'll begin to correct you on some things. He'll begin to instruct you. That's why people can't hear the Lord because they don't understand his nature. His nature is to love you. That's his first. God so loved. That's his first indicator. That's why prophetic is so easy. All you got to do is tap into the heart of God and the love of God in a way she goes. The river begins to flow. We come before the Lord. We get in His spirit. And we begin to, Lord, just speak over me, just love me. We do adoration unto him, and then we let him bring love unto us. And then out of that love, now we can have a dialogue, right? So here it is. Ladies, you're going to get this one real quick. If your husband, all he did was do drive-bys, he comes into your presence, boom, 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 boom. Okay, what's for dinner? Okay, we need to get this done. This is what I need. I need steak and eggs tomorrow night. Okay, you know, all he's doing is coming to you and telling you what he needs, what he needs, what he needs. You're going to go, well, hold the phone here. I'd like a little relationship, before we talk about what you want. I'd like a little romance before you talk about what you want. You see it. It's modeled to us. God's the same way. We come to him, and he wants a little love. He wants a little romance. He doesn't need love. He's full of love, and he can't wait to give it. That's the difference. If you think Jesus needs love, you don't know him at all. He's full of love, and you were created to be loved by him. He cannot wait to love you. But he wants to get into that love, that love relationship with you, pour love on you, and then begin to give you anything you desire. Begin to give you the instruction, the direction that you need. That's why people don't get instruction and direction. Oh, I've asked the Lord and he hasn't answered me. Or it takes two weeks to answer him. Get in his spirit and begin the love relationship and then see how much revelation you get. You're going to get a lot. It's going to unload on you. He was expectancy. So he, he, and when isolation, then he had expectancy. How do you know if you're expecting a word? Do you have a pen and paper ready when you go before the Lord? Yeah. yeah. Do you come before Jesus? Do you read your Bible with a pen and paper in your hand? I would tell you, you don't have any expectation if you don't. It's true. I come to worship with a pen and paper. I usually have worship. I have a pen and paper in my back pocket most of the time. Or I'm near somewhere where I can get a pen and paper. Because when I'm worshiping the Lord, revelation's coming to me. Ramah is going to be released to me and I need to write it down because I'm not going to remember it when I walk out the door you have to have expectation I come sometimes I would come for answers and I would expect it Lord I know you're going to answer me I'm going to come in your presence and honor you I'm going to love you boom and I'm going to receive your your answer read your word come before him worship him honor him but have expectation Read, worship, pray, listen with expectancy. Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. He tells him to write it down. He said, I'm going to show you something. This is, again, I'm going to give you two last big points. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion. We're going to dismiss. <laughs> they extend the service. It doesn't stop me. I just, you know, okay, more time. Woohoo. <laughs> Some of you are like, Thanks a lot, Pastor. I really appreciate that. I'm going to finish it. Don't worry. Write it down. Say this with me. The Lord expects me to do Something with what he gives me. He gives, he gives Habakkuk a vision. He tells them to write it down so that they that read it may run with it. And He tells them, the vision will speak. When you get a vision from the Lord, the Lord says, Write it down. You know, you watch people in our church and you wonder. They go, Now I got a prophetic word. And you see them pull their phone out. Why do they pull their phone out? Because they want to record what's about to be said to them. This came from a church, don't prophesy. The guy about freaked out on me because I gave him a prophetic word. Boom. I'm a pastor. You have no permission to prophesy. Excuse me. You might want to put that on the wall, brother. No <laughs> prophecy allowed. <laughs> might come to our church, man. They're whipping out their phones. Let's go. Hit me. It's true. I tell the guys I was there at the... I mean, it was a bad experience, but I told it was not a healthy one at all. It was everything I don't want I experienced. I was like... Nah. I'd be in the services, and I felt like I couldn't breathe. I'd be like... oh. My wife's my wife's like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I just feel like I'm suffocating here. <laughs> Religious spirits of oppression. That's what it is. So anyway, there, you know, whatever. I tell this guy, I go, we have nine year olds that prophesy. Nine-year-olds. We were here last week, had a couple kids come up. Hey, Pastor, we got a word for you. Uh, and again, I'm like, come on, hit me. Come on, hit, do it. Go for it. Give me a word. Lupe's walking by. I don't see Lupe, but she was here. Lupe walks by and I go, I go, give a word to Lupe. Lupe's walking by, I go, come here, Lupe. I go, let him give you a word. And little Nehemiah, 8, 9, 10-year-old kid, looks at her and goes, I see, I see a woman. She can't walk. Uh, she's on a walker. Uh, she's having a hard time walking. She wants to go back to bed. Uh, but you keep helping her. You want to help her walk. And I keep seeing two days, two days. And he goes, well, I think Jesus is going to heal her in two days. Well, that was him. But the word that he gave was right on the money. He doesn't even know the woman. And Lupe's mother is in, a, is in the hospital, you know, end-of-life sort of situation. She's been on a walker. She's on a respirator. And Lupe is feeling so much pressure because she has to make a decision about the care that she needs to give. And she's feeling all this pressure. And he gives her a word. Lupe just started crying. Ten-year-old kid. Well, where'd that come from? Because it's your inheritance. Yes. It's your inheritance. It belongs. It's the inheritance that is in the saints. It belongs to the believer. Will all access it? No. So we treat like, don't prophesy. I'm mean, like, dude, put that on the wall. I want nothing to do with it. When you, when you neuter the prophetic culture, you neuter the kingdom, period. You can do that whatever you want. And I'm not talking about this weird, and then we make prophecy all weird. We make it weird. I we got to strike a pose. The Lord says, you know, I mean, we do all this dumb stuff. We're stupid. We're stupid. We really are Christian dumb. You don't find, it's naturally supernatural. It is the spirit of God manifesting through the context of life in a relevant and acceptable way. Relevance to culture is not optional. It's not. Write it down. Remember, as you begin to get a vision from God, you write it down. When you move towards a vision, here's what happens with a vision. Some of you are not going to understand this, but if you're going to get a vision, say, I don't have a vision. Well, go get one. Go get one. Say, Jesus has got a vision for my life. Yes, he does. And you begin to move towards a vision, the vision begins to speak. So as you're moving towards the vision, the vision will begin to speak. And oftentimes what the vision will do is it'll morph, it'll shift, or it'll redirect. And what you think you're moving towards is not actually what you're moving towards, because now that you're moving towards the vision, the vision is speaking to you. That's how it works. And he says, move towards the vision, let it speak, Though though it takes a long time, wait for it. Next slide, almost done. We need to have a vision of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's done for us. The big point off that is what I wanted to say off the vision is that God, Hosea said, I'm gonna go up and I'm gonna get a vision and I'm gonna hear what the Lord will have me answer. This is a big thing. Okay? Yeah. He says, God's gonna tell me something, but he's also gonna tell me how I'm supposed to answer what he just told me. So it looks like this. Lord goes, Speak over me, Lord. You're a world changer. Okay, or you're going to lead my people. I'll use me. Ask the Lord, I was a young kid, young guy, 19 years old. Lord, what do you want to do with me? He said, you're going to lead my people. I couldn't walk a dog at that point. I could barely lead myself, right? I didn't even know I barely could work an oven at that age, right? And the Lord says, you're going to lead my people. And I was smart enough, not by my own understanding, to go, well, what does he want from me? And I felt like the Lord told me, study leadership. Give yourself and study to leadership. So God gives you a vision, and then he wants to give you the answer of how you're supposed to answer that. He tells you you're going to change the world. And here's what we do. Woohoo, I'm going to change the world. Da 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 da. We run around telling everybody. God told me I'm going to change the world. He told me I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be a world changer. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a world changer. Have you answered him according to the vision? Lord, how does that work? What do you want from me? How does that what are the steps? You need to answer him according to the vision. That's exactly what Habakkuk said. He said I'm going to the Lord, and I'm going to answer him according to the word that he gave me. And I'll give you another one, okay? Show another vision. Had a vision? Just in the spirit just revelation, wasn't really seeking, and I was just meditating within the Spirit, and I felt like I saw a like, guy with a wall, somebody chiseling words on a wall, with a, like a real primitive. And I felt like the Lord said to me, my people's knowledge of healing is primitive. Okay. I could have went, all right, so that's my next sermon series. The, you know, my people's knowledge, that's what the Lord told me, but I was like, okay. And I remember sitting there, when I had the vision, I was asking myself, I go, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Okay. And I could feel the Holy Spirit go, Ask for the sophisticated knowledge. I could feel him telling me, he's showing you something and I'm going to answer him according to what he showed me. So I said, so I felt the Lord's and I said, so give me the sophisticated knowledge. And then he says to me, you can't handle it. And then I went in the corner and sucked my thumb. No, that's not what I did. I felt like he said, you can't handle you asking me for something that you're right now not built to receive whether it's spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, physically. Oh, I don't believe that. Yeah, you know what, really? You know, as you pursue the kingdom, you you tell me what your life has produced, and you show me, and I'll tell you exactly this is how it is. You say, I want a million-dollar business. You're you're not structured to handle a million dollars. You're not emotionally, mentally, your attitude's wrong. All of the structures of your life are not set up to handle what you're asking him for. Okay, then what do we ask? We say, okay, then, Lord, redefine me then restructure me. Then change the way that I think, change the emotional makeup that I have, change my attitude, change everything about me, but put me in a position to receive what you're showing me and what I'm desiring of you. Rooting out, pulling down, building and planting people, it's how it works. That's exactly it, and I said, then take me apart. I told the Lord that. Take me apart. Whatever you got to do. Increase my capacity to carry the anointing. Increase my intellect. Change the way that I think. If I'm, most people don't access power because they think in religious paradigms. They either think like humans or they think, in, they think in terms of denominations and they think in terms of religion. And their paradigm is what blinds them. They're blinded. They can go no further than the way that they think. And so God has to completely destructure your thinking. Christianity is all about programming you. Jesus is all about releasing you, empowering you, opening you up, seeing, seeing the kingdom in a broader context, seeing possibilities, not limitations. You ask him for something, he wants to give it to you, but you can't handle it. I want a godly marriage. Really? Well, what you got right now, it's not going to get you there. Your system, your structure, your makeup, everything that you got going on internally is not built to handle what you're asking for. It's not. You're gonna to have to change everything I'm gonna to have to undo it all that's how it is we move towards the vision the vision will speak but we need to answer the Lord he'll show you something he'll show you a vision you'll go that's your future guy says oh God's gonna have me write four He's gonna write four books God going help me write four books two years in a row I watch this guy testify the Lord has told me I'm gonna write four books I saw him the next year I'm like how's those books coming bro you written any, you've written a chapter, you got a title, you got a sentence, you got nothing. Have you not only received, have you answered the Lord according to the vision? Have you structured your life into the vision? It doesn't happen in the current state. You have to structure your life into that vision. Your time, your talent, your treasure, everything has to be focused into that vision. That's the way it works. Last thing Habakkuk worships. God tells him this is what's going to happen. I'm going to work it out, Habakkuk, and in the end, I'm going to bring victory. And Habakkuk begins to worship. Worship is what we do until we wait, until we see what God does. We worship and trust the Lord. That's what we do until we see what God does. God gives a vision. He gives a purpose. He says, this is the way it's going to be. And there's a space in between. And it's the space in between that's the most painful. It's the waiting, Tom Petty said, that's the hardest part. The space in between worship is what we do and we celebrate until we see you believe it one of you you believe it some of you you're in the space in between god's given you a vision but you're nowhere near it he's told you i'm going to redeem this situation for you i'm going to change it and you're either there's two things that are going on number one you have to partner with what he's telling you So you got to get in line and begin to partner with what he's telling you. And you go, I feel like I am partnering, but I'm still waiting. Then in between, in that space in between, when you're waiting, you celebrate until you see. That's what you do. And what you're doing is it's a proclamation of faith. Lord, you're good. Lord, I know you see. I know you're going to work this out. I believe your word. You're going to do what you say. That's it. And I tell you to believe God for promises. I told first service, if you're not believing God for promises, I challenge whether or not you have faith. I didn't say you were saved. I just challenge your faith. Faith is trusting God for the promises. Faith is trusting in the nature and the character of God. And if you're not believing God for something, you're lacking faith, and you're really not pleasing. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Just because I said you don't have faith, I want to be clear. I didn't say you're not saved. Understand that we're called to believe Him for something. What are you believing Him for? Are you believing Him for anything? Do you have a do? Are you believing Him to show you or take you anywhere? Are you believing for anything? Are you believing for any kind of change in the world? Is there anything that you're believing for? And you say, I don't know what to believe for. I'll give you something. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. He may say, ask me for Nicaragua. He may say, ask me for your neighborhood. He may say, ask me for your new workplace. He may say, ask me for a raise." He may say, ask me for a promotion. He may say, ask me for a spiritual upgrade. He may say any one of those things to you. Let him tell you. Lord, what, do you, what, 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 am I believe, what am I to believe you for? Believe him for it and then answer him according to what he told you. Last slide. We're going to take communion. Thank you for your patience and receiving everything he has for you this morning. Stand to your feet if you would, please. We're just going to do this little prayer together. We're going to take communion. And oh yeah, we got pictures. Oh yeah. <laughs> Say this with me. Lord, I trust you for what I cannot see and for what I do not understand. Come on, say this. I choose to know and to believe that you are good. I believe that you are working behind the scenes to bring about your purpose, my victory, and the kingdom's destiny. I choose to celebrate until I see. Right now, I offer you what I cannot control. If there's any burdens on you or anything you feel beyond your control, I just want you to offer it to Him and just release it to Him right now. Just get it off your chest. Just release it to Him. Say this, I offer everything that is crushing me, everything that is bigger than me. You are God and I am not. Therefore, I surrender knowing you are my hope Come on, don't say this unless you mean it. We're going to give Him permission. I give you permission to do what only you can do. I give you permission. Here we go, hold on. To do what you have to do. Root out, pull down, build, and plant. And I just want you to give Him your anxieties. Just say, Lord, I give you my anxieties. Everything you're fearful and nervous about, I just want you to give it to Him. And I want you to say this. And I receive... Your perfect peace. And I just want you to let his peace come down over you. And just let yourself be filled with his peace and his assurance that he's got it all in hand. And he's working on your behalf. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah. (laughs) So if you would, if you would make your way up and around and grab the communion elements and bring them back to your seat. We're going to take communion together. And then we're going to dismiss. Yeah. So the word communion means common union. We take it together because we're in common union with one another. We take it individually because we're in common union with Christ. So it's what it means. And this is something that really mattered to Jesus because it's a remembrance of what he did. And we tend to forget, don't we? And sometimes it's important that we pause and recognize the significance of what he's really done for us. And even if it's in some some little thing like a a cracker or a wafer and a little cup of juice, it's, there's still meaning behind it. It's a prophetic act. It's what it is. We're declaring, he's done this for me. It's not religion. It's relationship. So let's hold it up. Say, this represents the body of Jesus that was broken for me. I believe it and I receive it. This is no small thing. Take it together. He gave his disciples a cup, and he said, this cup represents my blood. It's a new covenant. The Bible says in the book of Leviticus, where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood had to be shed. What it also establishes prophetically is there's a new bloodline. This is symbolic. You're born by the blood of Jesus, not the blood of the earth. You're in covenant with heaven, not a culture. Your ancestry does not go down through your family line. Your ancestry and your inheritance flows from above. Hold the cup up. Say, this represents the blood of Jesus. It was poured out for me. It is no small thing. I believe it and I receive it. Let's take it together. Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in, in every way, and may he give you peace. And forever may you live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. We have pictures. In the soil. I-